You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Television is self-defeating. It's a multiplier for the industry. It increases the price, but doesn't decrease demand. The drug war began with the process of colonisation. The current measures are based on fear. Good afternoon. This is Encyclopedia on 3CR, 855am3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. Um, yeah, thank you very much to Freedom of Species back next week from the same time, 1pm. Find out more information about them at the website 3cr.org.au where you can find uh, program pages for each program that you hear on 3CR, links to social media, uh, subscription to podcast link, uh, and if they've got their own website, link to their website as well. So you might find extra information there, which you can do um, for us uh, and you can do for Freedom of Species as well. Um, on this afternoon's program, I uh, have jam-packed it with bits and pieces um, that I have been a part of over uh, lockdown 2.0 for Melbourne. Um, we are in... Uh, the, oh, jeez, are we even halfway yet? I don't think we've reached the halfway point in our lockdown 2.0. Um, but we've had plenty of things going on. So in this afternoon's program, something new um, for drug news, and we'll get stuck into that uh, in just a tick. I'm also going to be hearing a short snippet from the AOD Media Watch webinar, which was based on the ABC TV series, um, Sean McAuliffe's On The Source. Uh, So that video webinar is available on our YouTube channel. Uh, Just head to YouTube and type in Encyclopedia and you'll find uh, the full one-hour webinar there. Um, Also, um, I am a member of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum's executive and have been working with them on uh, webinars as well. And we recently had one for the... uh, the independent review into the medically supervised injecting room in uh, in North Richmond. Uh, that uh, webinar had the um, person who was doing the review, Margaret Hamilton, uh, Professor Margaret Hamilton, uh, was the keynote speaker. Uh, I'm not going to play the Margaret part this week. We'll hear uh, that in future weeks. Um, but if you want to watch the full thing, uh, just head to Yarra Drug and Health Forum's website, YDHF. .org.au uh, and you can watch uh, the YouTube channel there and watch the uh, the, the full uh, review. Um, I think it's actually on Varda's YouTube, but you'll find it on Yarra Drug and Health Forum's uh, YouTube uh, playlist as well. Uh, Varda are the Victorian Alcohol and Drugs Association and you can find their website, Varda, V-A-A-D-A.org.au. This is Encyclopedia and something new for you first. Uh, we're getting stuck back into news and have uh, a, a new voice helping us with that. Jack Ravel is the editor in charge of Drugs Rap. And Jack, can you tell us a little bit about what Drugs Rap is all about? Yeah, sure, Nick. So um, I started this um, maybe about five weeks ago now, and it's basically a compilation of all the drug policy stories from you know across Australia, around the world. Um, it's something that... I'm really passionate about. Um, I had a little bit of extra time over lockdown um, and I kind of thought this might be something that would be really useful to the space. And, you know, a lot of people seem to have shown shown some interest in it. So that's uh, really positive. Um, And yeah, it's just compiling basically what's happened over the last week, giving it to people in like an easy to read format and hopefully it's uh, useful for the people. Uh, Subscription link is here. You can subscribe to that and get that in your inbox. Uh, Friday mornings, you're pretty much um, every Friday by about midday, people should have that in their inbox. Uh, That's the aim. Doesn't always get there, but Friday. (laughs) It is is a free and voluntary thing. So uh, that's the kind of, you know, it's it's nice when you can uh, give something to someone for free and have a regular thing uh, on it. But I think people are going to be understanding if it takes a little uh, longer some weeks. Um, But... Without further ado, shall we get stuck into some news for this week? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, right. So this week, 
Um, what we've got is, well, a whole bunch of stories. This week was actually really busy for, for drug policy stuff. Um, and I think the first story to talk about is the, uh, the Alcohol and Drug Foundation have launched a new campaign, um, which is basically making people aware of um, how much they've been drinking over uh, lockdown. Um, they've done a bit of a survey. They've found that 12% of Australians are drinking every day. Uh, 10% report having more than 10 drinks a week. Um, and that's kind of shot up in the last six months. Um, so they're kind of just cautioning people, you know, be aware of um, your drinking habits. And obviously it's a pretty stressful time for everyone. Um, but it's something that can quickly like become routine uh, and, you know, it's a hard habit to break. So I think they're just trying to make people aware of that. Um, and then the next story we've got is that, uh, well, Sydney Morning Herald, they've reported on uh, drug gangs basically exploiting the pandemic to move um narcotics around. Um, this was basically a few weeks ago. Police in Victoria found that two uh, air tasker workers had been, um, I don't know, they'd been hired to move 10 kilos of MDMA, obviously unsuspecting. They didn't know what they were moving, but uh, basically working out that this whole working from home thing and a lot of couriers moving around, uh, drug gangs obviously exploiting that. Um, so that's kind of an interesting story. I'm, I'm curious as well on the language used here, um, just uh, just stopping for a moment on the use of the term uh, party drug uh, for a time when parties are certainly not happening, perhaps MDMA, uh, which is also the drug that's being used in uh, psychotherapy quite successfully uh, in the US, which is probably going to be available in the US uh, in the next couple of years. Um, so still using that maybe archaic term party drug, um, but it's part of that um, mainstream uh, drug rhetoric, I suppose. But yeah, probably not too many parties going on, probably more couples having MDMA together and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, you'd hope so, particularly in Melbourne right now. But, um, yeah, I think you're right. Like, the descriptions around the use of uh, MDMA particularly are obviously a bit outdated, I think, in the well, in the media landscape in general. Uh, our next story. Um... We've got... Uh, Essentially, it's a survey that has been done by the National Centre for Education and Training on Addiction. Um, they've shown that... Uh, people who work in the alcohol and other drugs industry, in the alcohol and other drugs sector. Um, they've found that statistically, if you're working in this sector, it's, it's a lot of women, it's a lot of middle-aged people, and most people here have pretty good job level satisfaction. Um, but it also shows that a lot of these people have real struggles with financial issues, um, particularly in accessing further education, uh, they haven't got a lot of time, and that there's a particularly high sort of burnout rate uh, amongst people in this industry. So I think, obviously, that's a bit of an indicator into where more money should be going and obviously the people they're working with as well are going to be suffering because of um, you know, lack of funding in that area. So that's kind of an interesting, quite important story. Um, um, black flights, uh, this um, on the story about the uh, couple of couple of guys who downed the plane because it was a little too heavy. Yeah, so this was last week's big story and I think it really like caught a lot of people's imaginations. Uh, so plane took off from Papua New Guinea um, last week and it was overloaded with cocaine and it basically crashed uh, pretty soon after takeoff and um, led to a lot of arrests in Papua New Guinea, but also in um, in Australia. Uh, and yeah, so two guys have been charged uh, this week with conspiracy to import drugs. Uh, they've been denied bail and they're suspected to be these sort of high-level operatives in uh, sophisticated drug syndicate that were flying in pretty high quantities of cocaine into, into the country. Um, and it's all linked back to the Italian mafia, supposedly. So it's a bit of uh, kind of intrigue and like a bit of an exciting story there. Mm. Um, oh, I've, uh, next on, aha, there we go. Um, yep. So then we've got, uh, basically the government has changed um, what you can bring into Australia. So they've expanded their list of prohibited substances, um, basically looking to target uh, precursor chemicals to people manufacturing things like MDMA and um, methamphetamine, I think particularly. Um, so they've expanded uh, trying to stop people from bringing those drugs in, which are currently legal. Um, and then... There was another sort of little story from um, the drug and serious crime group who've basically dismantled this national syndicate, which I think is putting it in a bit sort of more grandiose language than actually is 
the real story here. I mean, they've seized 200 kilos of cannabis and 400 plants, um, you know, almost a quarter million dollars in cash. And it, 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 it sounds big, but I, I don't actually really know how big this story is. And I think calling this a national syndicate, they um, basically waited to homes in uh, Queensland and, and Victoria uh, simultaneously. But, um, you know, it's uh, sort of an ongoing comment on what's really happening uh, currently. Yeah, um, it's also um, not not uh, not unsurprising for the um, uh, the sort of uh, supply reduction arm of uh, of drug prohibition to be um, really shouting any victory that they have from the top of the hill because that's kind of part of their strategy. It needs to look like it's working um, to give the idea to the public that it's working. But I mean, we've seen the the, the um, estimations of the size of the drug market in Australia are. Uh, uh, just significantly larger than anything that we ever see from supply reduction um, attempts. So obviously there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a big market and uh, there's a lot of money involved. People are not going to uh, stop trying. No, for sure. Um, definitely. Uh, and so this week in weed, um, the Tasmanian Liberal government have basically announced a $10 million commercial loan, uh, which they've given to a group called Tasmanian Alkaloids. Um, and they've just new facility uh, in Westbury, which is going to be producing 90 tonnes of cannabis each year, which is going to be put into, I think, CBD um, medical cannabis bottles. Uh, well, that's, that's handy because I believe Tasmanian alkaloids are also the one of the uh, world's largest sellers, uh, producers of um, opiate-based uh, uh, or opiates for medications as well. So glad that uh, struggling company are getting $10 million from the, <laughs> from the libs. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's all part of this you know, recovery strategy, which uh, is kind of an interesting way of putting it. You know, they're, they're essentially just giving a company that already has a lot of money, uh, a lot more money. Um, and then that company is going to be producing um, drugs, which as the next story shows, the Tasmanian Examiner basically did a bit of an expose on the actual medical cannabis market in Tasmania and have shown that about 60 people have access to medical cannabis in Tasmania. So, you know, this, uh, this drug isn't really going to be going to a, people who really need it in the, in, in the area. Like there, there's not that many people who actually can access it, um, which, you know. I think that there is a um, inquiry going on uh, at the moment. I'd have to go and double check that, but into the uh, access problems around medical cannabis, because it's not just Tasmania. It's right across um, Australia where medical cannabis has been made available. It's so difficult for people to, uh, to actually access it that um, not many people are getting to access it. No, it's pretty, it's pretty limited. Yeah. So uh, do you think that's going to be, that's, hopefully going to change, but, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, and then, yeah, essentially the Northern Daily Leader <clears throat> newspaper has gone up and had a look around the Natural Therapeutics Group Medical Cannabis Farm uh, near Armadale and basically done a bit of a report on the growing medical cannabis industry up there, uh, which I just thought was interesting. And having a look around the inside of some of those big operations is always, um, you know, it's always uh, quite good to actually see what's actually going on there. So, um, yeah, so that was, uh, that was Australia. And to the rest of the world. Um, so first story, big story is uh, the Drug Policy Alliance, um, who are kind of one of the world's leading drug reform organizations, really. And they kind of set the bar for a lot of um, a lot of industry groups. Um, they have basically put together this sort of suggested legislative framework, um, almost like a demo or trial um, legal policy, which will um, set a bit of a you know a pathway for how to actually get out of the war on drugs, how to um, how to decriminalize, and how to go about um, you know dismantling the whole system that's been put together over the last fifty years in a way that's um, going to benefit the most people. So they've got um, a whole list of like policies and ideas and um, like specific laws that they want changing and things like that. So it's a really detailed document. It's not too long. It's only like four pages. Um, and I think they've put a lot of work into it. I think it's really, um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a really good piece of work. So um, no, I thought that was a great story. Again, if you want to find any more information about any of the stories we're talking about, the subscription link is uh, down the bottom there, and that's from uh, these are all from um, this week. Which uh, how do you call a week? What's this week? It's August, <laughs> uh, so mid August. Look for the mid August one. Um, Magic mushrooms in the UK. Yeah. Oh, psilocybin. Yeah. So 
Well, I mean, yeah. So this was coming from uh, from the Mirror over in the UK, and, and basically um, the police and crime commissioner, um, a guy who's been involved in the police force for a long, long time, uh, former police officer. Um, he basically has come to the conclusion that the the ban on psilocybin should be overturned, um, and I think he's saying that this is particularly in aid of the current mental health crisis that's ongoing uh, due to the coronavirus. Um, pandemic in the UK. Um, so he's written to a bunch of MPs uh, to support widespread access uh, to psilocybin through the National Health Service, and he believes that this will save, you know, millions of dollars, uh, millions of pounds, even um, for people not having access to mental health. You know, this could be like a, a really cheap and easy way to get some really effective treatment to a lot of people. So um, I think it's nice to see when um, you know people, particularly involved in law enforcement, have kind of a bit of change of heart or they've seen the seen the the side of drug policy um you know that we often don't really see and it's it's obviously not working um so he's kind of going with the research on this one which i think is really good excellent news um the eu are taking a new approach well, they, they've got their new um, their new framework, or they've agreed upon a new um, framework until twenty twenty five. Which is, it's not really a new framework. It's just like here's how we're going to go and do things over the next five years. Um, pretty much in line with what you'd expect. Um, they're going after particularly drug importation and drug manufacturing within uh, the European Union and the disruption of criminal gangs as sort of their main priorities there. Um, and in that report, it suggests that the um, the illegal drug market in the European Union is worth about 30 billion euros each year. So they're um, they're pretty keen to disrupt that and, and dismantle some of that. But it's, it's broadly in line with kind of what you would expect from the European Union. So... Um, and more deaths, um, more people sentenced to death in, in China, which um, we, we've seen Australian citizens before with, um, I can't remember their names, but um, the two, two blokes that were um, uh, killed, was it last year, the year before? A couple of years ago. And then uh, people from other countries as well being sentenced to death uh, for drug crimes. Yeah, so this one is kind of interesting because it's definitely more political than it is um, like a drugs issue here. Um, it's essentially two guys, and one of them um, is a Canadian national. Um, they were apprehended for producing and possessing uh, 120 kilos of ketamine, uh, which it suggests is being distributed in the clubs and you know party scene in China. Um, and only one of them was sentenced to death. So the Canadian national of, of that pair was actually sentenced to death. And, and that's thought to be a retaliation um, because the Canadian government had been um, helping out the U.S. in detaining this Huawei executive um, who the U.S. wants to trial for some fraudulent dealings, apparently, with, uh, with Iran. So it's a big kind of global, you know, international relations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... Anti-doping. Yeah, so there's the World Anti-Doping Authority. So they're the guys that run um, essentially the doping um, stuff in, in the Olympics and in kind of world sport. Um, they have said that they're going to decrease their sanctions on athletes who test positive for recreational drugs. So I think currently if you if you test positive, you know, things like cannabis or, or whatever, um, you get a two-year ban from sport, which is, um, you know, it was obviously pretty heavy and would really affect your career as an athlete um, they're actually going to reduce that from from one to three months um for, for recreational drug use so that's obviously a bit more of a sensible policy from them yeah so um uh, mexican oh a mexican drug cartel el maro the name of yeah so the mexican drug cartels like always you know uh, make headlines and things like that i think shows like narcos and all that stuff you know people are always really into it so uh sky news did a bit of a story about uh this guy called el maro which means the sledgehammer in uh in spanish <laughs> have a cool Pretty name good. yeah <laughs> um but you know his led this gang which is a pretty um you know horrendous group of guys just you know, all the stuff you'd expect, like murders and kidnappings and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And essentially the Mexican police have, have got this guy, they've apprehended him, uh, and that's thought to, you know, then put an end to this gang. But, I mean, the issue is that this gang that this guy's head of is actually quite a minor gang um, in that area and that they've been at with this other uh, much larger gang for, for some time and it's kind of 
suggested that probably what's going to happen is that much larger gang is just going to move into uh, into their territory and take over operations there. So, I mean, the Mexican authorities are like, celebrating this because they need some good like publicity because they're thought to be losing um, the overall war with the cartels. But yeah, I, I'm not sure how much this has really turned the tide for them. Uh, that seems like a familiar story, though. Uh, arrests happen, and uh, the uh, like we were talking uh, before, the the police and the authorities want to want to uh, champion it from the from the hilltops and say, "Ah, look, we're winning." But the reality is, uh, drugs won the drug war a long time ago. <laughs> uh, Islam, ISIS, an ISIS story. Gosh, there's a name we haven't heard for a while, or ISIL, or whatever name um, took your fancy. Um, I guess we all uh, stopped paying attention to the um, to the terrorists when the world fell apart. Plus, they fell apart, didn't they? But what's this about? Yeah, I mean, this is what they they certainly were almost entirely put out of action. But uh, apparently, they're still going. And 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 so last year, um, the Italian police seized this like huge amount of um, amphetamines at, at the border. Um, and it's a it's a weird drug that I'd never heard of before called Captagon. Yeah, I, I remember reading a story about this and about ISIS being involved um, with uh, Captagon. Uh, it must have been on Erowid.org. Uh, or at least shared through Erowid's um, channels um, maybe a year ago, a year and a half ago. But more news, what's happening? Well, essentially, it's been a bit of a theme or a bit of an understanding that, you know, ISIS are producing uh, this drug, which is like a you know, an amphetamine that was developed in the 60s and like quite quickly banned. It was designed to treat um, ADD, but it's like a very addictive, you know, amphetamine drug mm-hmm. um, and people always say you know, Islamic State they're importing all this stuff into, into the European Union but actually this new report has come out um, from the London School of Economics um, which has shown that actually it's more likely that the Syrian government itself are the source of, um, of these drugs um, and um, the author of, of that report, one of the co-authors, a uh, woman called Caroline Rose, um, she said that actually the informal economy of the drug trade is really like a lifeline for the Assad regime. So they're kind of supporting this and, and exporting um, drugs in this way and potentially under the cover of um, thinking people are going to blame the Islamic State. So kind of right. another interesting... Twists national- and turns. <laughs> um, and um, finally, uh, finally to uh, Ireland... Yeah, so in Ireland, um, it's essentially um, a little story about the city of Cork, where uh, a researcher did um, a survey of drug users over there, and I think this is particularly drug users, um, long-term problematic drug users, uh, who essentially said to him that um, criminalization penalties, they don't really have any impact on drug consumption at all. Um, And the guy who published his paper is actually a former um, heroin addict himself. Um, And he's just really like done all this research and surveyed all these people and found that essentially what's happening is not really working. So um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of more of what we already know, but more sort of uh, science to, to prove that point. It's always always good to have these um, these uh, things told from different angles from different parts around the world to really you know get those facts. Although it does reach a point eventually where you start to get frustrated and go, I'm pretty sure that we have established this as fact um, everywhere. Actually, there was another good um, Irish study on um, the power of uh, on similar veins. This was a long long time ago though, but I just it sticks in my mind um, on the power of um, negative. Um, negative media about drugs and how it has the opposite effect to what the uh, people making that media might think it might have, which is to scare people away from drugs. But actually people tend to be, uh, you know, the people that were already going to be scared, kind of scared, the people who are in the middle are intrigued. And then there's other people who go, who sort of use it as like a catalog, like, oh, here's the latest drug. Um, We're going to go and find that drug now, which is exactly what we saw um, with uh, the novel psychoactive drugs or synthetic drugs was the drug uh, term used a lot. Um, but you know, we, that's um, that's what happens with uh, with uh, with drugs. It's um, it's not an issue that we're going to solve by fearing away from it. Um, it's not an issue we're going to solve uh, through criminalization. And um, Jack, thank you very much for bringing us up to date on um, drug news from Australia and around the world. Um, this week. 
No worries. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, look forward to bringing you all the latest uh, next week. Um, please do subscribe. This is, a subscription link is uh, just down there. Uh, and also follow on Twitter, Twitter at DrugsRap, uh, and you can follow uh, Jack there and uh, stay in touch. Thank you very much. This is in Psychedelia. You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented no. times, and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe and be kind to each other. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. In Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3CR.org.au, looking at all things drugs. And now we're taking a local focus with the medically supervised injecting room, uh, the Yarra Drug and Health Forum's uh, monthly meeting alongside VADA, the Victorian Alcohol and Drugs Association. Uh, the two websites are ydhf.org.au and VADA is v-a-a-d-a.org.au if you want to go and uh, find the webinar that I'm just about to play. Uh, I'm going to play a short bit from uh, Sally Mitchell, who's part of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum executive, just talking a little bit about um, the backing, the background uh, for the medically supervised injecting room uh, before Margaret Hamilton uh, speaks uh, about the independent review. Um, we're going to play that on a future episode, but you can watch the whole thing on YouTube at uh, either Yarra Drug and Health Forum's YouTube or VADA Victorian Alcohol and Drugs Association. Uh, so I'd like to introduce uh, Sally Mitchell now. Sally Mitchell has been uh, an executive officer of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. She sits on the executive of the forum now, but as a local resident, Sally's going to talk about a little bit of the history of uh, these issues within the city of Yarra. Thanks, Sally. Thanks, Peter. Um, so I'll just start with a little bit of background for the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. I'm assuming that some of the 150 people who are currently online may not know um, all of the background of Yarra Drug and Health Forum. So the forum started um, in the mid-1990s when there was a lot of um, visible drug dealing, so a street market in Smith Street in Collingwood. And uh, there was distress from local residents, from um, some of the traders in Smith Street, about uh, the level of activity there and the forum was formed to talk um, with those people between local services and and the people who are experiencing the impact of that activity and try to come up with some resolutions and some way of ways of addressing those issues. Um, in 2005 the Yarra Drug and Health Forum started to hold some community forums in the evening for community members to come along to and to talk about issues across the whole of Yarra that might have been impacting on their lives. Um, the, those forums were attended by residents, by traders, uh, workers from local services, um, the police, City of Yarra, Department of Health, as it was then, Health and Human Services now, and also from time to time we had people who used drugs who would come to those forums as well. The purpose was to hold discussions much as from the early days of the forum, to have an opportunity for people to discuss their local concerns and to work together, thinking that um, people with different opinions and different experiences would be able to work together to come up with some solutions to the problems that they're experiencing. And it was a very uh, respectful way for people to sit and have discussions together. Each forum had two or three presenters 
who would also be presenting different perspectives on the issue that was being discussed. And, um, and from there, we then opened it up for discussions amongst the community members who were present. About this time in 2005, we held a forum at Richmond Town Hall. That was because there was much more drug activity on Victoria Street and there were concerns from people in North Richmond about the impact of that activity um, on their local community. So we met at uh, Richmond Town Hall as a local um, venue that we could use where people could easily access it. And we had a number of speakers there. We talked about the data of how much drug use and what sort of substances people were using in Richmond that we could get from statewide data. And we had uh, a presentation from the person who was the superintendent of police for the area at that time. And uh, he spoke um, very clearly about the city of Yarra's position in terms of drug activity and particularly street markets for the purchase of drugs. And talked about the location of Yarra in relation to public transport systems and the road network. And basically said to us, there's not going to be an, an easy fix to this and we need to be looking um, more broadly about how we, we can respond to this issue. We then opened the floor up to questions and discussion and, and we had some really interesting comments from community members who were saying, people are injecting drugs in public places in our community because they haven't got anywhere else to go to do that. And we need to provide somewhere for them to be. That night we had some people who injected drugs within the, the uh, participants and they um, spoke very clearly about their need for services, but also that if there was a place for them to go to use drugs, they would use that facility. So at the end of that meeting, it um, challenged us as Yarra Drug and Health Forum to think about how do we respond to that, this issue? We commissioned um, a number of pieces of research over a few years. Excuse me, I just need a mouthful of water. And the results of that research were that we realised that we needed to come up with some local solutions to a local problem. We couldn't just look at what else had worked in Australia or overseas. We needed to look at the particular circumstances for the city of Yarra and look at what we needed to be doing to respond to those particular circumstances and what we were hearing from people who were around in the city of Yarra. Um, we did a lot of work. We had a whole project that looked at working with um, and talking to people who were using drugs around that area of North Richmond. And what became very clear from that was that we needed to be making sure that we were responding to a really complex set of needs that they had. Um, that it wasn't just about somewhere to go to use drugs. There were other supports and things that they needed as well. And it was also clear from those different pieces of research that we really needed to be looking at community amenity and what the impact on local residents and other people in the community was of having a lot of drug activity in their community. So based on that research, we commenced advocating for a facility for people who use drugs in that area, feeling that there wasn't enough support for them at the moment and feeling that having some access to a service would also have an impact on the community amenity. So there was a long time between 2005 and 2018 when um, the MSER finally opened. And uh, we looked a lot at other things in that period of time in terms of other strategies to address drug activity, but we continued to advocate because we could see that there was a need in that community and that it was a response to a very localised issue. We were really pleased when we heard the announcement in 2017 that there was going to be a facility in North Richmond. And we were also really pleased to hear that um, that facility was going to have a very thorough evaluation and that evaluation would be looking at the benefits of the service for the people who are using it and the reduction in harm to them, but also that it was going to be looking at community amenity 
and the reduction in harm in, within the community as well. So we were really pleased to hear that Margaret was heading up um, that evaluation and um, I guess now we have an opportunity for those people who haven't read her report um, to be um, hearing some of the detail of that. So thanks very much for everybody to come for coming and hearing um, from us today. Thank you. On Monday the 23rd of March, 3CR closed its doors to all presenters so that we could do our bit to help stop the spread of COVID-19. We understand that it's important for people to be able to stay at home at this time in order to reduce the number of people affected and thereby reduce the stress on our health system. Since the 3CR shutdown, programmers and volunteers have been working remotely to create new content and produce their show from home. We'll continue to bring you dynamic, up-to-date community radio during the COVID-19 crisis, so keep listening. The St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. Call 9231 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. On digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to In Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR.org.au and 3CR Digital. Uh, for the rest of the program, we're going to be hearing uh, some of the AOD Media Watch webinar for Sean McAuliffe's On The Source. Uh, it was a special three-part series on the ABC recently, which you can watch right now on ABC iView. Uh, just head to ABC iView and look for Sean McAuliffe's On The Source. Um, and that th- uh, three-part series focused on alcohol and Australia's relationship with alcohol, which seems to be um, a big discussion at the moment, especially with uh, drinking levels up uh, under the under the lockdowns. Uh, people's substance use generally has shifted, I think, uh, under lockdown. Um, but we already had a bit of a tenuous um relationship i suppose with alcohol tenuous um but strong and and it's at the heart of um the the european part of australia that started uh with with the um uh with the uh british coming here uh and the rum rebellion and alcohol just being such a central part of our culture and it still is a central part that's what Sean was focusing on uh that's what with the AOD media watch webinar was focusing on um thank you very much to uh ABC TV uh and the production team there who reached out to a number of different organizations including AOD media watch to offer the opportunity to use um some of the uh some of the elements uh from their TV show and to and to put this um these webinars together. So you can watch the whole thing at our YouTube channel. Uh, it's youtube.com and uh, just have a look for In Psychedelia. We don't have a fancy URL yet because you need something like a thousand subscribers and uh, I don't know how sexy drug policy uh, is to get a thousand subscribers, but please do go and subscribe, watch the video. It's an hour long. You'll see segments from the uh, ABC TV series as well. Uh, and uh, hosting it was Dr. Stephen Bright of AOD Media Watch. Their website is aodmediawatch.com.au. What about you, buddy? If Sunday Too Far Away reflected the kind of Aussie pub culture we were more or less comfortable with, Wake and Fright showed audiences the dark side of Australian drinking. <laughs> this is your first you? film. My first feature film, yeah. How are you? A school teacher finds himself stranded in the outback 
where the quintessential Australian pursuits of drinking, shooting and loving combine to terrifying effect. Now, were you aware that it was going to be that nightmarish as a film? It's interesting, Sean. It still doesn't strike me as nightmarish. Oh, is that right? It's just, maybe that's just my take on it. No, I, okay. can, see, I can see that, that it... Uh, it struck a lot of people as being nightmarish. People walked out of the theatre, they'd left in droves saying, that isn't us. But of course it is mm. us. Mm. Four more and four double whiskeys. I think audiences watching Wake in Fright had the unsettling feeling that this was accurate, and that's probably what it was. Oh, yeah. Even though the objection was, we're not like that, the, the fear that they had was that we are like we that. Are like yeah. that. To me, it almost seems like not much has changed since 1975 in terms of the Australian public not really wanting to acknowledge that alcohol is a drug, and it's a drug that causes significant harm in our community. As a journalist and an academic, Kate, how can you explain what's going on here, and how does it perpetuate the disproportionate focus by the media on drugs other than alcohol? I think that he he speaks directly to it when he says it's about community, and we kind of need to remember that the media is constantly marketing itself and constantly doing the work of saying, you want to be watching us, you want to be, you know, we're part of your life, we're a trusted friend, come to us and watch the media we present. And one of the, you know, ubiquitous tropes that they tap into to do that is that they're cool with, you know, having a drink with me. Um, So they're not going to really be challenging that because that, because they're trying to use it, they're basically bandwagoning on the idea that you drink with your buddies and you drink with us. So I think that there's actually, you know, you quite often see it in messaging around how media markets, it's how, how news and media can even market itself to being part of someone's life. But in addition to that, there's a sense that they, are, you know, media outlets are companies that need advertisers, so where they're still tapped into that advertising model, there's perhaps a reluctance to be too critical of the companies that are buying ads. And uh, we saw that as a reluctance um, for a long time to really engage in questioning tobacco because the tobacco companies bought the big ads and alcohol's a big advertiser. So maybe, I don't know, and I think on an individual journalism level, Probably individual journalists are being horrified by me saying that and saying, no, no, we wouldn't let that sway us. But when it comes to the sort of subtler levels of pressure that come from higher up, it's got to be a question, you know, especially in smaller media outlets where um, where that financial pressure is much more real. Um, and by real, I mean close to the bone and, and the advertising department and the news department are physically closer together. You can start to see that there's some of those issues possibly playing. But apart from that, I think that, um, as Flip said, the media is a mirror of society and if society is drenched in alcohol, then that's to the a point that we don't question it, then the media is also not questioning it because it's mirroring that, like, if there are no royal commissions to be reporting on, then what are we reporting on? If there's no community outrage to report on, then what are we reporting on? Uh, So in a way, it's looking at the sort of overall apathy that we have about this issue and and not really, yeah, chasing it to that, you know, not really finding the stories to report there. So it sounds like there's an issue in terms of whether the, the, the story is newsworthy or not, and also you're sort of speaking to the sy- systemic issues that are that are broader to any given yeah. journalist. And so this is maybe a good point to bring um, Flip in. You know, as, as a journalist yourself, um, what what are your thoughts here? On the say that again. Sorry, you dropped out for a second there. So, uh, you know, Kate was sort of talking about the um, the, the systemic issues that are a barrier to the media reporting on alcohol-related harms, and it also doesn't really seem to be newsworthy at a theoretical level. It's, yeah. it's so yeah. it's so deeply embedded within Australian society. If you're not a non-drinker, you don't realise this. Yeah, I'm not sure that that I certainly don't feel, I mean, definitely the ABC, there's no pressure not to report on these things. And um, I don't, you know, and and sure, I think advertising must play a role in part that, um, you know, individual journalists are always interested in doing a story. I think 
one of the problems that we have is not so much um, the journalists not writing about it, is that the audience appetite for some of the messages is perhaps a little bit lower than it should be. Um, one example that I always like to talk about is everyone will quote the line at you about red wine being good for your heart, um, but very few people will quote that research that came out in 2018 that The Lancet put out, which said that no amount of alcohol is safe. And I think people um, largely, I think, don't want to hear some of those messages because they think that, you know, I, I definitely have had responses where people are a bit like, oh, come on, you know, leave us alone, just let us have our beer and just, you know, don't be such a wowser. There's still that kind of attitude in Australia that is quite strong. Um, it's, un, it's an unpalatable, unpalatable message for people that alcohol is carcinogenic. They, you know, and, and we certainly do those stories, but they tend to drop like a stone a lot of the time because people just simply don't want to hear it. So mm. I think you've got that problem for some reason, and it's interesting that you draw the parallel with the tobacco lobby because I thought a lot about this. You know, we've reached the point now where it is fairly socially unacceptable to light up a cigarette and people are well aware of the harms that are associated with smoking. We're not there with alcohol yet. And it's interesting because when you look at the links with cancer and obesity and all of that stuff that I certainly found out when I did my year off, um, I don't associate that stuff with alcohol. And so for whatever reason, the sort of the public health campaigns um, and those messages just aren't getting through to people. So I think it's more about the audience than the journalists at this point. Yeah, yeah because... Because at the end of the day, the the it's so embedded within our culture. It's it's a normal part. You know, we use it to celebrate, to commiserate. It's a normal part of Australian culture. And this is kind of highlighted in episode two when Sean attends a book club. Thank you. Hey. Nice to meet you. Sean, I'm Beck. Beck, uh, I've got a, 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 a wine. Nice, that's thank what, you. That's it's what people nice. do when they go to book clubs. Yes. Right? You can put it in the cupboard. I don't know what it is. No, we'll drink that. Uh, well, I did read the book. It was about a group of friends and it was associated around a family barbecue. Joanne's joining Rebecca, Dee and Pauline to talk literature, drink wine and eat strawberries. I didn't even bring the book. Sally didn't bring the book either. <laughs> and I've invited Dr. Sally Hunt, an alcohol researcher from the University of Newcastle. You'd be more embarrassed if we turned up and we hadn't read we it. We hadn't read it. Well, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the other cliche that's often associated with book groups is wine. By the time we get to book club, which may happen once a month, we sort of get together and we're actually looking forward to it because our children are driving us nuts by then. Yeah, yeah they do. That's why we invented book club. Life's just so busy. We're juggling more than what we used to, I suppose, and that's our release and we get together with some supportive girls and we help each other through maybe just situations that we might be going through and it's a glass of wine that helps that edge as well. You never used to drink much, Bart. No. When no. I first met you, you didn't drink. No. Did I make you drink more? <laughs> <laughs> With women driving Australia's wine boom, little wonder they're the prime targets for marketing. Meanwhile, the internet is full of memes proclaiming wine as mother's little helper and where children's bedtime is wine o'clock. Such images are often accused of normalising alcoholism. We're only resorting to alcohol because it's legal. Like, let's face facts. I mean, you can go down in the morning to get a litre of milk. You'll come back with a bottle of wine to fill a glass because, you know what, you've dropped the kids off at school. You spent 45 minutes in the morning. That's a lie. An hour and a half in the morning getting them to school and you're yeah. exhausted. You need to cope. You need to do the things you need to do. The bad news is that when we look at what the data says, drinking to cope seems to be a predictor of that heavier, um, more problematic drinking. We, we know that lately we've seen particularly mums in their 40s, we're seeing a narrowing of the gender gap 
So traditionally men have drunk more than women. Historically it's been kind of double. Men drink twice as yeah, much as women. And women are out in the workforce more instead yeah. of being at home and oh, there's a whole range of social changes that happened, made it socially acceptable for women to do anything that men do. Mm -hmm. um, but the downside of that that, that isn't publicised is that alcohol affects women differently than it affects men. When it comes to things like cancer, liver disease and other health problems, the woman's going to get sick sooner yeah. or is more likely. Former yes. boxer Pauline found her drinking was causing problems. I was just hitting it and I didn't realise at the time how much damage I was actually doing. They pulled me over and I was over, yeah, I blew over and lost my licence on the spot oh. and I was just like, what the hell? I didn't realise how much it actually affected me, uh, alcohol, and how much... Mm. I didn't have much education, and I think that's what lacks, mm, is that yes. we don't have education around alcohol. I have a great faith that people make good choices when they are given the information to make a good choice. Given the right tools. But mm. when it comes to alcohol, we're not given all that information right. in a loud and public way. Alcohol is the legal drug that has got more consequences to it than mm, any so other right. drug. And it's so potent and accessible. And it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle, isn't it? Mm. Mm -hmm. It's a socialised drug. Yeah. I think close the bottle shops down to a certain amount of days throughout the well, week. Well, I'm not sure that's a, going to be a popular petition. So, Julie, from a public health perspective, what was going through your mind as you watched that clip? Well, I think it, it really highlights how deeply embedded alcohol is in Australian women's social and cultural practices, the sorts of things they do in their everyday lives. <clears throat> it really resonates strongly with the research that we've done with middle-aged and older women. Um, when they talked about alcohol, it was described as being very socially acceptable for women to drink. Um, they described alcohol as going hand in hand with socialising. The other thing that really jumped out at me in that clip was how central alcohol is to the routines and the rituals that shape Australian women's lives. Um, it, it kind of highlights at one point Sean talks about alcohol as being a socialised drug and I think that comes that kind of comes through in that clip. So if we look at the the, the rituals or the routines in that clip, um, in that book club, alcohol was being used to mark the transition between the everyday grind that mothers experience in terms of they talked about getting their kids to bed and getting them off to school, that transition to me time, to relaxing time. It also... Um, sets the mood so alcohol is used to set the mood in this case it's conducive to chilling out and relaxing and having fun so it's kind of like gives you permission to do that and it also reinforces relationships among women so it helps to sort of confirm uh, a group identity and strengthen bonds within women's social networks so it's, it's a really powerful tool that, or powerful thing that's used among women um, and those rituals are reinforced through marketing messages that Flip talked about before and also through the sort of memes that, that um, were, you know, included in that clip, the, the links between alcohol and mothers and how, you know, mothers use alcohol. Um, and those messages just reinforce this idea that alcohol, you know, the normalisation of alcohol, that it's socially acceptable, that it's okay, that it's a part of everyday life for uh, women, you know, middle-aged and older women as well. And it also underpins an expectation that women will drink and that that makes it difficult for those women or people who choose not to drink because, um, because alcohol in Australia and in, in many other countries as well is really synonymous with having fun, relaxing and bonding with other people. Mm. And all of that really seems quite harmless, Julie. And, you know, but I guess drinking goes beyond the book clubs. And anyone that's worked in a hospital will know only too well that every weekend thousands of Australians experience harm associated due to drinking too much or being the victim of an alcohol-fueled assault. In the second episode of On the Source, Sean visits a major metropolitan hospital. Can we throw to that clip? Whether it's throwing up or throwing punches, excessive alcohol consumption often ends in a mess. 
This is where that mess gets cleaned up. It's Friday night at the emergency department of Sydney's St Vincent's Hospital. And the staff are preparing for, as one doctor described it to me, a conveyor belt of carnage. You're just in hospital at the moment. How much have you had to drink? You're not sure? Alcohol is the most widely abused drug in Australia, placing a great strain on the nation's health services. It's a factor in nearly half of all fire injuries, more than 30% of murders, and one in three domestic violence incidents. An ambulance has just been triaged out drinking tonight with his friend, running in and out of traffic. It sounds like the four-wheel drive was going. He then stumbled in front of it, hit it, no injury, but he's vomiting profusely. Here at St Vincent's, they estimate that 15% of their ER admissions are alcohol-related. It's roughly the same for hospitals all over Australia. Most patients are in such a state they can't communicate with the medical staff. <coughs> Nurses have to determine if they've overdosed on alcohol, drugs or both. He denied drug use, but we did find drugs in his pocket. So he says just Sorry. alcohol. All right, mate, you're going to have to help us a bit. Ready? Open your eyes. I'll sit on this chair. Back, back, back. On the chair, on the chair. No, 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 we know he's drunk, so it's just observation. Make sure he's safe. Send him on his way. You're not anticipating doing any tests tomorrow? No, no. I can see that he looks from head to toe like he doesn't have any injuries, so okay. there would be no need to do anything. It's just making sure that people are safe when they come in like this, that they're not going to aspirate on their vomit or be vulnerable. We get a lot of young girls, so they're not vulnerable on the street yeah. by themselves where anything could happen. Yeah. You were here before the lockout laws came. And what was it like then? Oh, mayhem. Um, pretty much every cubicle would be an intoxicated head injury, you know, run over by a car or various injuries. It definitely has quietened down since lockout. Because I wondered whether it was wearying for you to, 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 see, to see this all the I time. I mean, sometimes it yes. does get wearying, but it's our job. That's what we're here. We're here to help people. So that, this is part and parcel of it. Do you know where you are at the moment? Absolutely. Whereabouts? In the hospital. It's alarming to think of all the hospital resources being allocated to so many people suffering what are essentially self-inflicted wounds. And as a parent, it's doubly confronting. It's profoundly uncomfortable and depressing imagining your own children getting so blind drunk they end up this vulnerable and incapable. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Being reduced to the level of a baby and having to be looked after by people. I, this doesn't help me understand why at all. It's just weird and sad and absurd and surreal. It doesn't look like fun. It doesn't look funny. It's horrible. Dreaming was quite sensational. It was people be presenting at emergency departments, being treated for alcohol intoxication. It's what anybody who's worked in a hospital sees every Friday, Saturday night. And the footage is quite confronting. It's it's quite sensational. So as I'm not a journalist, but to me that seems to make a good news story. Kate, why isn't this a good news story? I'm really glad it's not a good news story because it would be a kind of horrific sort of journalism, incredibly voyeuristic, incredibly insensitive to be contacting, you know, to be chasing people to tell a story when they're incapacitated, when they should be being as honest and open as they can to the medical staff around them, when there may be legal issues going on that that are yet to be revealed. Like they may be victims, they may be perpetrators of various crimes that are going on because there's been some impairment and some issues, some drama, some injury. So I don't think that 
that is a good place for a journalist to be uh, because we don't want journalism to be interfering with the justice process. We certainly don't want journalism to be interfering with the medical process. And I think as a journalist, how much story could you get out of that anyway? Oh, here's a person, they're being sick. That, you know, you don't necessarily want to be saying any more than that. And I, I just don't think there's all that much story to be told there. And where there is crime, those stories come out later in due course through the court cases as they should. This is in Psychedelia. Psychedelia. For more information, visit Encycadelia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. In Psychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.